it's encouraging to feel the days getting warmer, even if some of the days didn't seem to get the message. But overall, we're moving toward warmer days and nights, times for gardening and long walks and campfires. It is striking to notice how powerful is the long human fascination with sitting around a fire in the evening often or in the daytime. Of course, there are good practical reasons to do that. Fire is light and warmth, and it is a necessary ingredient for stone soup or any other soup for that matter. Maybe not every soup. It seems overwhelmingly likely that the earliest human communities gathered around fires to share together and find a sense of community together. And it's also very likely that they passed away many hours around the fire telling stories, singing songs, maybe some chants, and talking about the experience of being alive. What an amazing thing it is to be alive and talking about the thunder and where did the thunder come from and why is the river higher and lower at different times and just what do we do when people die and just every difficult question. You can imagine people sitting around those fires way back in our history having those kinds of conversations. And we know that they told stories. We know that since the earliest years of humanity, we like to tell stories and we like to listen to them. And so many, many stories were told around the campfires and some of those stories were more popular than others. You know, some stories you just forget and then some stories hang on and they hang on for maybe decades or or centuries, or even millennia. And we know that the stories were probably embellished and added to over the years, and they were changed, and sometimes different stories were brought together to make a longer story. And so we know that these things happened in the early years of humanity. Stories were about the human condition, about love and bravery, stories of the the village or the tribe coming through some difficult challenge that they had. The story of the flood, the story of the earthquake. These became powerful parts of the history of groups of people. And discussing what forces were responsible for these events, for the seasons, for the storms, for fertility, and all the vast variety of life. Every Sunday when we light the chalice, I have the thought that we are kind of reenacting that event. Because it seems to me that's one of the earliest and most primary of all kinds of religious gatherings is to light the fire, to sit around the fire, to tell our stories, to sing our songs, and watch our videos, all that's more recent. But it's the same idea. As human groups became larger and more complex, 
the traditions undoubtedly changed. Certain stories became known as that tribe's story. That's the story of our people. And another people may have had a different story, and that became known as their story, the story of those people. And then some people were very good at telling stories, and they became sort of the official storytellers. And they were looked to to tell the stories and to explain what the stories meant. And so you get sort of a professional group of people who specialize in this. And undoubtedly, as certain people became good at this, issues of status and power and who had control of the stories and who, whose job was it to tell the story of the people had certain disadvantages when issues of power and status came into it. And I think you could imagine how that might happen. And eventually these groups in a process of cultural evolution created more complex systems of singing and storytelling and dancing and chanting around the fires that then became something that we in our time might call religion. We in our time might call religion. It's not necessarily that they had a concept of religion because that just meant that we go sit around the fire and then these are the things that happen when we sit around the fire and people have been doing this for a long, long time and this is what we do. We don't call ourselves the Pentecostal Lutheran Synod. We just go sit by the fire. We sometimes think of these ancestors of ours as being primitive or some other word like that, of being people who didn't understand the world very well. They just didn't. They didn't know about all the stuff we know about. And so, in some ways, we're smarter than they are. But their ways of life were successful in many ways, at least to the extent that they survived and they passed through the difficult challenges of their times so well that they were able to pass the world and life itself on to us. And so those people were pretty successful in being able to do that. Why didn't they just die out? Certainly were a lot of possible times when they might have, but they passed along life to us. And so I always think we owe these ancient people a debt of gratitude because we exist. What a good thing. Although now we have different ideas about why things happen and we don't necessarily think that the river God got mad at us and that's why there's a flood. But somehow the way they thought about it did work. Today the descendants of all these campfire people live all over the planet. We are those people. And the campfire people have evolved into an enormous variety of different kinds of storytellers with different stories and different explanations about things happen. And we call those groups religions 
There are Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs, Jains, Taoists, Shintoists, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Zoroastrianism, Zoroastrians, all kinds of native groups, nature-oriented groups, atheists, agnostics, humanists, and so on. And all of these groups can be further subdivided, by the way, into their many, many variations. Just think of all the different kinds of Christians, Catholics, Greek and Russian Orthodox, all kinds of Protestants, Baptists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Methodists, Nazarenes, Mennonites, Mormons, African Methodists, Episcopal, and so on. They can be subdivided finer and finer and finer. There are literally thousands of these groups all over the world of different kinds of people with different stories. You know, they're like flowers in a way. You know, there's these flowers grow up and these flowers grow up and then over in that part of the world there's a different kind of flower that blooms because of the climatic conditions. Some or, or they're like animal species. Some have spots and some have stripes and some have tails and some have teeth. And you know, we may think that the atheists don't subdivide, but the atheists subdivide too. You know, you have religious humanists and secular humanists and naturalistic theists and uh, religious naturalists and so on. There's a story about two Irish gentlemen sitting in a pub talking about religion. They were both atheists, actually. They were both atheists, but one had grown up Protestant, one had grown up Catholic, and so they're sitting in the pub, these two atheists, hotly discussing issues of religion and getting kind of fired up and a little bit angry and with each other and red face. and the bartender comes over and says, why are you guys arguing about this? You're both atheists, aren't you? And one of them says, well, I may be an atheist, but I'm a Presbyterian atheist. <laughs> so it's not quite so simple, you know, just to say that if we take a certain theological position, that's the end of all this richness of experience that goes with being part of a group. Uh, you know, I'm a UU, but in a way, I'm a kind of Baptist UU. I, I'm very aware of that. It's, you know, it's not something you can just take out of your pocket and say, you know, leave it and say, well, that's gone. <laughs> it's not gone. It shows us that in these groups, there's far more going on than simply theological statements. There's all kinds of things going on. There's community. There's a sense of belonging. There's... Uh, certain kinds of art, certain kinds of music, certain style of having a potluck dinner, a certain way of grieving when we lose a loved one or celebrating when a baby is born. There are certain days of the year that you have a party and there's a certain kind of bread for that party. That doesn't all go away if you change the theology. That stuff is all still there. In our country at the moment, we have a big battle going on primarily, one of our big religious battles is primarily between those Christians who are still 
unwisely, I think, clinging to the literal interpretation of an old creation story that undoubtedly went back thousands and thousands of years and was told around fires. As a matter of fact, if you look at the Judeo-Christian creation story, and if you go take even an introductory Bible study class, they will tell you that there are two different stories there that have been spliced together. And the reason that there are two different stories is because those were two different campfires. There were some people over here who told the story a certain way, and some people over here who told, and eventually to get it all merged, you know, you had to splice those two, but they can identify who those people were to some extent and how they told the story differently. And in the book of Genesis, it gets spliced together like it's one story, but it isn't. Fascinating stuff. So in our country right now, we have this uh, really sad tale of a big discussion between those who want to cling to that literal interpretation of that old story and another group who are very diverse, but many of them are those who are really skeptical of all those kinds of stories except the story of science. This is really an American thing. This is not going on so much in other parts of the world, but it's part of our American culture and we can trace it back to the Scopes trial and all those kinds of things. But we really have a serious case of this in the United States. We really do. I would suggest that it's really time to let go of this old campfire story, at least in its literal sense, and I really think that will happen in, in time. It's happening already that that story is being let go of, but boy, are we really having a lot of casualties along the way of that struggle. One of the casualties of this argument is the loss of awareness of how diverse the religious spectrum is. It's a, there's a certain loss of that awareness in our culture right now because of the polarization of it. There is a widespread feeling that all religious people everywhere are as intransigent as the creationists, which is not remotely true. And it's a shame because I think there's a great oversimplification of the wide diversity of religions as a result. There's kind of a parallel oversimplification in the air regarding the idea that religions are inherently violent. Karen Armstrong, by the way, a wonderful religious writer, has written her latest book on this subject. And I know she argues that this is not true, but I haven't read the book. Maybe it'll be an adult RE class for us. None of the major wars in US history have been about religion, by the way. World War I, World War II, Civil War, revolutionary, none of these are primarily religious conflicts. But it is true that religions have been part of wars, that, that's certainly true. So it's, it's a, I guess what I would like to say about that is it's far more complex than this overgeneralization might suggest. We also know that relig many religious movements in the world are growing and that religion does not show any sign of going away. Islam 
is growing very fast. It's the fastest growing religion in the world. Mormonism is growing as well. It's one of the fastest growing religions in the United States. Atheism is growing in the United States, but not particularly worldwide. Maybe a tiny little thing worldwide, but worldwide it's more or less stable. Religion, with all its moral ambiguity, is probably going to be around for a long, long time. Why would that be? Well, I think it goes back to the campfire. Life is such a puzzle, such an enigma. It's such a radical combination of beauty and tragedy, just like our candle lighting, that we human beings are almost continually looking for some way to make sense of it. We're always in that enterprise. Stories and songs and rituals speak to these deep needs, as well as to our need for community, because we want to go to potlucks, and our need for moral guidance. Religions may make huge errors, enormous errors in their judgments. They may be corrupt. As a matter of fact, there's a huge amount of corruption in religion. They may be taken over by power-tripping people who are in it for ego satisfaction of some sort, whereas all the great religions teach that the way forward is the transcendence of the ego. So all of those things are true. And all the people who point out those problems are mostly saying the truth. A lot of it is true. But the other side of religion is that it attempts to speak to the depth of life, to the depth, to get to the absolute deepest issues of life. And even if the answers that it comes up with may not be that great all the time. The fact that it tries to do that, in some sense, leads we, us as human beings to continue to take that quest. Even if the religions disappoint us, as they often do. Since religions have done so many strange and hurtful things, many contemporary people say we should just avoid them. Just don't go there. Don't do that. And one of the phrases that's come up about that is the phrase spiritual but not religious. Our friend Bob Fuller has written a book by this title, by the way, which is worth reading. And indeed, that is an appealing option. Can we just be Good people, can we be spiritual people? We, why do we have to have a religion? Why can't we just get rid of that? And by the way, this, I haven't even mentioned this yet, but you know, underlying all this, there's a question I haven't mentioned, and that's whether UUism is a religion. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give an answer on that. So could we 
just be spiritual people or just be good people or just be concerned and caring and compassionate people and not have a religion? Could we just uh, maybe do it on meetup, you know, website? <laughs> Say, we're going to be down in Constitution Park, you know, at 11 o'clock, bring your guitar. <laughs> you know? So that, maybe that's an alternative. So everybody goes down to Constitution. You know, we don't have a UU church. There aren't any more churches. We've sold this to become a gambling casino. That got your attention. <laughs> and we just go on meetup and we go down with our guitars to the park and we sing some songs and maybe the pagans come and lead us in a dance or something. Somebody says a prayer. Some people grumble, oh, they're praying. <laughs> and we have that. And then after that we get on meetup and see where something else is happening. And that is an appealing option in some ways, but our needs for community keep drawing us together. And the first thing you know when people say, well, where are we going to meet next week? What if we could go over to the um, community center and maybe, you know, we could get a room over there and maybe for 20 bucks every Sunday and we'd just pass the hat and we'd collect the 20 bucks and so in the wintertime we wouldn't freeze to death. So we do that, and pretty soon we are having potluck dinners, and pretty soon we have a building, and we have a calendar, and utility bills, and pretty soon we have a pledge drive. <laughs> now, now we have something that anthropologists would call a religion, you know? And I'm not critical of that. I think that's actually a good thing because it enables so much more to happen, you know? You never get the experience of going to regional assembly and singing a hymn with 500 people, just doing the meetup. Maybe you could, but it's unlikely. This pattern of ours to gather together in these ways seems to be part of human cultural evolution. This is what we do. This is what we do. And if you think that the humanists are not part of that movement, are part of the broad spectrum of religions, I would like to show you the very beginning of the Humanist Manifesto. Humanist Manifesto was a document published in 1933 where a bunch of people got together and declared the beginning of humanism. The minister of our church was one of the signers of that document, Clinton Lee Scott. Point number one in the Humanist Manifesto begins religious humanists believe. Religious Humanists. In, within Unitarianism, humanism has been viewed as a religious movement. So I just want to throw that out for your reflection. So you don't have to believe in a God to have something that fits into the same broad category of human activity. 
I know we have to talk about that more. We'll, we'll go to Panera's and we'll talk about that. So personally, I have decided that trying to get rid of religion, even though I love John Lennon's song, but trying to get religion, get rid of it, is not, I think, a good use of my time and energy. We humans are constructed to like to be a part of communities that attempt to answer the deepest questions of life. Even if the answers are often very inadequate and sometimes harmful. There is no doubt that some of the answers are harmful. We have to face that possibility, that reality. But there seems to be a dimension of human life that wants to be involved in that activity with other people, wants to join together and do that. And it has to do with an intuitive sense that we are part of a larger reality, just like the people at the campfire looking up and looking at all those stars and just saying, what in the world is going on here? We have to try to understand it. There is a woman named Diana Eck who is a professor at Harvard. And she runs something called the Pluralism Project. The Pluralism Project. Part of what she and her students do is to track all the religious groups in the United States. All, everybody. They keep maps and databases and charts about what's going on religiously in this country. She can tell you how many mosques there are in each suburb of Nashville, Tennessee. She can tell you that, they've got it. She can tell you how many Mormons there are in Puerto Rico and whether that number is going up or down and how fast it's going up or down. So that's what they do. They know all those things. And she can tell you whether each group is growing or declining and at what rate and where they are. I first heard Diana Eck speak at the 1993 Parliament of the World's Religions in Chicago, and she argues for something that she calls religious pluralism, <coughs> which she presents as a way for people of different religions to live together in peace. A way for people of different religions to live together in peace. That is something we need. Now, pluralism, as she defines it, has four qualities. And I'm going, to put, I'm going to put a little note on this in the builder. And if I don't, you bug me about it, but I will remember. And so here are the four qualities of pluralism that she says will enable us to live in peace. First of all, pluralism is not just diversity. She calls it energetic engagement with diversity, energetic engagement. So it's not just that there are different groups, it's that they're engaged in some way. For example, Nazi Germany had a diversity of Christians and Jews, but it did not have energetic engagement. So you can see the difference. Secondly, pluralism is not just tolerance, but it's an active seeking of understanding between groups, across lines of difference. It's people seeking to understand each other and extending some effort to do that. It's something we have to do. 
We can do it through Interfaith Alliance or something like the Parliament, or we can do it. We did it this year partly by inviting in a rabbi and an imam. And in the fall, we have a Buddhist coming. And as the time goes by, we try to invite different people to come in here and have dialogue with them. And you know what's weird? They all turn out to be nice people. Isn't that strange? In spite of all the stuff they believe or that we think they believe. The third thing is that pluralism is not relativism. It is the encounter of commitments. So it's not, pluralism does not say that everybody's idea is worth the same thing and that it's just a choice. It does not say that every idea is equally right. So if somebody comes in and says, we believe that the moon is made out of green cheese and that Michael Jordan is the king of the society up there and eventually they will eat it all and it'll be gone. So we don't think that's probably a very good theology. We won't throw them out, but we might have a critical response to that. So pluralism is not relativism. It's an encounter of commitments. It means everybody brings their best game to the table. And they do not, they do not give up their commitments. We don't give up our seven principles. We don't give up what we think is right, but we bring that in all honesty to the table. And we expect others to do that too. And we don't ask them to give up their religion in order to come have a meeting with us. We don't ask them that. We just ask them to come in goodwill. That's what we ask, okay? So pluralism does not say that everyone is equally right. So you don't have to agree with everyone to be a religious pluralist. And fourth, pluralism is based on dialogue. It uses a language of dialogue and encounter. So when we ask the imam to come in and tell us how it looks from his point of view and then we go to coffee hour and we sit down at the table and the imam tells, told us something about UU history that none of us knew that had to do with Islam, that's encounter and dialogue and learning, give and take, criticism and self-criticism. We come to the table with our commitments that we hold dear and not expecting everyone to give up their commitments immediately when they come and talk to us. I think this is the kind of pluralism that is very hopeful for the world. And the world needs this peace, at least not shooting, at the minimum not shooting. This kind of peace among the tribes from all the campfires. This is the kind of dialogue that the upcoming Parliament of the World Religion seeks to engage in. That's what that's all about. That's, that's what it's all about. It will not help the world to just say that Muslims are all violent or that Christians are all fundamentalists or any of those kinds of oversimplified untrue statements. It, it will not further our chances of living in peace. It will not make it better. I don't think. It is true that religions have done some very troubling things, and those things need to be named and called out. We're not going to give up what we think is right. But our best hope 
for peace is to bring our stories, our commitments to the table. Or we might say that now is the time for us all together around the fire, people from all the tribes for a big intertribal meeting, for each group to tell its best story and to sing its favorite song and dance its dance so that, as the Quran says, we may get to know each other. As long as we are engaged in that kind of dialogue, that kind of open, respecting, and caring dialogue, even if the differences are very great, even if they're huge differences, while we are engaged in that dialogue, the guns will be silent and we will be at peace.